Can ethnography change the world? How does one do ethnography for social justice? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with David Nemer in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome everybody to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am very, very delighted to have with us today David Nemer. David is assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies uh, at, at the University of Virginia. Before that, he was an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky. Before that, he got his PhD at Indiana University uh, with the outstanding Eden Medina. Uh, the PhD was in computing culture and society. Previously, he got graduate degrees in anthropology from the University of Virginia in computer science from Sala University and undergraduate degrees in business administration from Universidad Federal de Espíritu Santo and in computer science from Facultades Integradas Espíritu Santenses in Vitoria in both cases, his hometown in Brazil. He is uh, the author of two books, Favela Digital published in 2013 and the forthcoming and much awaited Technologies of Technology of the Oppressed, coming out with MIT Press in English and also with uh, in Brazilian, in Portuguese, uh, in Brazilian Portuguese translation, actually, it's coming out this month. Um, he is an award-winning researcher um, with, you know, awards from important professional societies such as um, CHI, conferences such as CHI and CSCW. He has published lots of refereed journal articles, uh, pieces in computer science conference proceedings, book chapters. He's an expert at the intersection of STS, anthropology, Latin American studies, and digital media and communication. David, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so gracias, Pablo. Thank you so much. This is a great introduction. Most deserve, my friend. So to get us started, tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? That is an excellent question. As you were reading my, my titles, one may think, in my degrees, one may think that, wow, how did he do all this? He must have known, you know, how to pursue his, his career and how to get into like a well-formed professor. And I say it's the opposite. It's the complete contrary because I just didn't know what I wanted. Uh, in my last year of high school, 
uh, where usually Brazil, you, you take this exam called vestibular, which is the college entrance exam. You have to know what you want because once you get into that major, that's it. Like you can't really shift and it's not like you build your major as you um, join the university. It's like a well-established and defined degrees with the, the disciplines and everything you have to take for you to get your degree. And I just didn't know what I wanted. And uh, business was something very generic for me because I thought, okay, everything falls under business and I can go in many directions. So I thought that I could do that. But I also really liked technology and computer science. You know, even that was in 2001 and computer science uh, was seen as the future, right? If you want to be rich and bright and smart, do computer science. You know, come study this uh, magic object called the computer. So of course, I was uh, attracted by that, and I ended up doing Pescola uh, for these two different universities, uh, the Federal, which is uh, state-sponsored. Uh, I did for business, and I went to a private school for the computer science degree. I thought, well, I'll start both. And eventually I'll decide which one to continue because there was no way I was gonna do both at the same time and finish both at the same time. And I was in my last year, I was a senior in both and I still did not know which one I wanted to pursue further. And I interned in you know, software developing countries, uh, sorry, um, companies and also in consultancy companies because I had to do that as part of my uh, degree in business and in computer science. And even though I interned and I felt what it meant to be uh, a person working in those fields, I still didn't know what I wanted. So uh, I finished it. And in Brazil, for you to finish your bachelor's degree, you have to write a what they call the monographia, which is uh, like a bachelor's thesis. Um, and I did it. I passed them, got both degrees. And then once I finished, I thought, you know, what now, what I want. And I wasn't really satisfied. I've always wanted to go to, to grad school because I, I never thought that the, the knowledge that I got from my bachelor's experience was enough. So I wanted something more because up to then, everything seemed very basic for me. So I decided to do a master's and I've always wanted to live abroad because I, I wanted to have other experiences. Um, I wanted to go come to the US for my master's, but here it's very expensive. Um, and given the currency differences, it would be very expensive for me and I wouldn't be able to afford it. So I looked into doing a master's in Germany where they are free. And I decided to do on computer science because most graduate courses, uh, programs in business are MBAs, which is professional oriented degrees, which wasn't my thing. I wanted to do something more academic so I got into my master's uh, program in Germany and I was doing it, I, I was enjoying it. I got to intern at the Fraunhofer Institute, which was nice. But then by the time I started doing my master thesis, I finally got to the realization that computer science was not what I wanted. Um, and I didn't know what to do. Uh, quitting was not an option. Quitting and going back to Brazil wasn't an option for me. So I struggled and powered through and finished my, my master thesis, graduated. And something that I realized then was more important than knowing what you want 
is also knowing what you don't want. And computer science per se was something that I did not want. Like I saw myself coding, you know, overnight, um, you know, doing uh, system analysis. It was just something that I didn't want. I didn't see a, a proper application of the things that I was developing into society, you know. Back in my computer science times in Brazil, as I was doing my bachelor's, I participated and helped coordinate a couple of digital inclusion programs where we would go to the favelas or remote areas to teach computer um, skills to uh, underprivileged folks. And that has always stayed with me. And I thought that during the master's, I would be able to amplify that a bit but I just saw myself, you know, programming things that didn't really have a social justice component to it. And I started looking into other programs because finishing my studies with the master's wasn't enough for me. So I had to look for something else. So I started looking into programs in the US for the PhD that could still stay in the, in the area of technology but could bring a different perspective, like a social science or humanities perspective, so I could engage in the kind of work that I really liked, which was related to digital inclusion or marginalized communities. So it was not until my PhD program that I finally realized that this is what I wanted to study. Uh, STS, um, anthropology, information science, it was all brought together in this very transdisciplinary uh, program that I was in which really helped me build my career path. So it was just in the PhD that I had a realization of what I wanted to study and pursue. That's very interesting. That's quite a journey. So, so you did your master's in anthropology at Virginia. So yes, so it doesn't end there. So I did the, the PhD, which was an STS-based PhD, and I was trained as an ethnographer during my PhD, and because I liked it so much, uh, I wanted to have access to the foundational theory of anthropology. So at UVA at Virginia, they have something called faculty benefit. So I decided to do an MA uh, in anthropology during the pandemic, and I did it. So when, in one year, I powered through the program, finished in record time, and they got MA, an MA in anthropology which really helped me write the book as well. Wow, that's remarkable. Okay, so I misread that. So I thought that your uh, master's in anthropology was in between your master of science at Saarland and your PhD at Indiana. So it was after. You had already been on the faculty at Kentucky and now you are on the faculty of Virginia and you decide to go back yes. to the classroom. How was the experience of being a student while being a faculty? It was it was great because uh, the late David Hacken, a you know, famous uh, mm -hmm. information yeah. anthropologist, he once told me that because uh, I was complaining to him as a PhD student, you know, we whine a lot. I was complaining that I don't have the time to read; it's too much. I don't know what to do. And he said, "You know what, David? Uh, once you become faculty, you're gonna have even less time to read. Actually, you won't have time at all." And of course he was right. And as I you know, became faculty at Kentucky in here, we spend most of our time in meetings, you know, talking to students. Uh, and here I don't have uh, students, which that's actually when you get to read the students uh, paper work, 
to discuss with them. Um, so going back to the to the classroom actually rekindled that joy of reading for the sake of discussion of debating. So that was really nice and interesting for me. Uh, I really liked it. The, the students felt a little intimidated because you know they had a professor as their peer, but after the first week, uh, they would forget it because they would just like, I mean, they're super brilliant students, so they knew more than me. So it was very nice to learn from them and have an opportunity to discuss the readings that I was actually doing. That's very really, and that interesting. That was during the pandemic, and that was as you were, I guess, writing the final version of Technology of the Oppressed. Um, and you were teaching probably too. Yes. How did you juggle all of those uh, <laughs> roles, student, so, writer, teacher? Well, I'm, I'm single. <laughs> I have no kids, so I have no shame in saying this. That's why I managed to do that. Uh, but also uh, very privileged as well, in the sense that um, I was not affected financially because we kept teaching online. Uh, you know, I was given enough support that I could just stay home and, and, and writing, for example. Uh, a lot of work for sure, but then I still felt very privileged that I, that I was given this chance to not have my life affected more than other people had. So I could engage, you know, in the process of writing and, and reading. It felt very complimentary as well. I was reading lots of uh, Du Bois, uh, uh, even Gertz in, in, uh, in ethnography. I took a class on ethnographic writing, which was great because that really introduced me to new uh, um, readings. Because in, in, in STS, we, we engage in ethnographic writings, but it's usually those within the field, right? So lots of uh, Susan Lee Starr, Jeffrey Bowker, um, uh, Diane Forsyth, but we don't see beyond those research in tech and science. Of course, Latour is one of them, but in, in anthropology, it kind of expanded me to other ways of engaging in, in, in ethnographic writing, especially because I did not want my book to be, uh, you know, the, the mechanic writing that you have you know a note and then you have a discussion of that note and then you move on i wanted to write a story um, and that really helped me do that fascinating so so let's go to that project because that project started when you were in your phd Correct. and um has a life of its own in the sense that it's been alive for about 10 years for about a decade Yes, it will finally, you know, be, be coming out as a book next February in English, in, in Portuguese this month. Um, what drawn you, what drew you, sorry, to, to that study? Um, how was the process of going back to your hometown to do ethnography? And um, how was the process of writing a dissertation about that? It was... Uh... I think that's when I grew as a person the most. Um, although I was researching the other, I felt like a, I spent a lot of time researching myself as well. In the book I write, the, when I'm um, describing the field and trying to explain the favelas, uh, I write a piece called Positionality, 
where I talk about how I positioned myself and how I saw myself in the field, right? Because I'm, I was going back to my hometown, going to an area that it's not considered, let's say, my hometown, my home territory, and yet I'm coming with this uh, lots of, of, of power in the sense that I was a researcher, I was a male researcher, um, upper class, white, and how was I going to juggle all that and, and conduct a, a, a nice ethnography? And then I, I, I mentioned how I've always was always interested in understanding the, the, the resistance and the resilience of, of these people and, and how can we make this effort not as painful as it is for them. So that always struck me uh, in the book I write how you know, my, my friends will call me, you know, this person with the forbidden fruit syndrome, meaning that I wanted to know the unknown, but because outside the favelas, the media, upper-class members, my friends, even myself, we would look down on folks from the favelas. But there was something in me that saw them as like, as Paulo Freire says, as fully humans. And unfortunately, the everyday oppressions take away the, the, the right of becoming fully human. And I've always wanted to understand that more, to find ways that we can circumvent that, or even in an ideal world, stop that. So I've always had that in me. Uh, like I played volleyball in, in Brazil. I didn't play soccer, I played volleyball. And although it's not a a level playing field, but that was when I had access to folks who were not from my social world. So uh, I had friends that lived in favelas. I actually spent nights with them, uh, spent time with them, because I've always, I was always very curious um, to know, and because I was only hearing bad stories on the other side, right? Like the media only talks about favela people when, you know, they talk about in the police section, for example. It's always very derogatory. So I, I try to engage in a more curious, but also in a humane um, curiosity, let's say. When I joined the computer science uh, program in Brazil, I had, I had this goal of promoting um, digital inclusion programs so that I could teach them computer skills. And we managed to do this twice, which was like a, a, a two month program each and that really helped me understand them better and spark more of this, this willing to help in a way. Um, and that's why when I did the, the masters, I didn't see that happening. I didn't see my master helping me to pursue that. And I saw that as I engaged in the PhD. Okay, so, so there is a significant autobiographical element uh to the work in a sense I'm, I'm hearing right am i am i writing in interpreting it that way that the writing of the text was a way of writing the self um in some ways yes there is yes and in a lot of unpacking uh not just them but them as in like the the favelas but also unpacking the upper class neighborhoods as well. Because like I said, oppression happens in this relation, it's relational, right? We need to have the we need to have the oppressor and the oppressed. So 
But just understanding the, the oppressed is not enough. We need to understand the oppressor as well. So there was a lot of unpacking that way, which was where I belong, where, where I was raised. And that really opened my eyes to see, you know, how, I mean, the disparities between these two sides. And yes, it was a lot about knowing the self as well. And was that process in Portuguese or in English? Um, and how much that process do you think has been shaped in whichever ways has been by the fact that you are doing this while working in the US, right? Uh, not while working in a university in Brazil. Yeah, that's a great question. So I wrote that all in English. And because I was academically, I was all trained in English. So I didn't have the, the tools, the, the words, the expressions in Portuguese. So that was all in English. But that also helped me because I wasn't a minority until I joined, I came to the US. Like I'm a Latino man. In Brazil, I, I was always the upper class white man. Although here I'm still white, but I am an, a Latino immigrant. And it wasn't until I faced that, that I started to understand how these different forms of oppression and, and exclusion happened. So the English language also helped me translate my own perceptions into what I was seeing in the, in the ethnographies as well. The book was translated by a translator and then I revealed the translation. I changed uh, things according to, to my own perceptions and stuff. But it was interesting how the Portuguese version reads uh, much stronger than, than the English version, I thought. It felt like each word felt like a, a strong punch than uh, the ones in English. And I don't know because I am more used to writing English than in Portuguese, but it felt like the words were much stronger, which in a way it's great because I feel like there's a lot of that I tell in this book that the Brazilian society uh, it needs to read. So it's great that it reads stronger. That's fascinating. Um, so it's not just the geographic location, and as you said, the fact that you are becoming Latino when you come to this country from Latin America, etc. But that the the switch from Portuguese in the field to English in the text back to Portuguese in the translation, all of those those two switches probably operate. The first one, a process of abstraction, and then a process of localization, probably, right? And that's why you feel it strong, more strongly. Um, yes. Very interesting. Um, have you shared um, over the years uh, your impressions and, and sometimes your texts with your informants? Um, yes. and, and how how has that sort of, how has that happened? What have you learned? How has that evolved? I'm very curious. Yes. So the first book, uh, Favela Digital, mm. or Favela Digital, uh, is a collective effort with local favela residents where uh, they were the ones who take most, most of the photos in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, the text was the one that uh, the, the text that I collected. Um, I have a couple of photos there, but like 90% of the photos are theirs. And they were, they wanted to train, to be, to be trained as journalists. Uh, so I thought, well, if you guys wanna follow me 
And, you know, you can see how I interview people and, and you know, I'm happy, happy to help. So we walked together for a whole month together uh, throughout the, the favelas, taking photos, interviewing people, talking to each other. And the great thing was that after the book was published, they managed to get um, jobs uh, in local newspapers or the state newspapers, which was nice. And this, uh, this was made with them from, from taking the photos and interviewing people to the conceptualization of the book. So we together chose which photos would represent the book, uh, the, the community better, which photos would not represent or you know, be stigmatizing. So we worked in this collective design uh, practice. As for technology of the oppressed, which is like the, the textbook, right? As soon as it was translated to Portuguese, I sent uh, the, the proofs to six people from the, from, the, from the favelas and they read it. And I was nervous because of course I'm talking about them and I didn't want to speak for them. But they got back to me saying, you know, uh, give me a huge congratulations and and uh, saying that it's gonna it's a good representation of them, a good representation of the struggle that they go through. Uh, in the book, uh, in Portuguese, instead of having renowned scholars in Brazil, I have them blurbing the book, um, the residents, because I thought it was because uh, it's it's them, right? So. Uh, if I don't have the endorsement, then for me, the book misses its purpose. And, and when I got the endorsement, to me, it was the biggest endorsement. Um, and I wanted to, to bring that in English, but it was a bit too late in the MIT process. Uh, they're a bit more formal. Um, so yeah, so th th that was a, a thing that I've always wanted to do. And these follow-up uh, field words, follow-up interviews that I would do was something to remain compromised to their struggle. Uh, it stayed me, kept me in touch with what they wanted. And as I was also talking about the book, they were curious to know what stories would go in, what stories I would leave out or, or which analysis I was gonna, going to bring. And it was always clear from the beginning to them. So I thought that was the, the right thing to do. Excellent. So how has been the journey for you since PhD and in particular, what has been the reception that you encountered um, about this project in American academia? You've now had two tenure track jobs. Um, so you've gone through at least two rounds of you know, uh, recruitment and, and, and you've presented at conferences, etc. Um, how has been in your perception people's reception of these ideas and, and how has been overall your journey of, you know, becoming part of American academia on the faculty side, not the student mm -hmm. side now? I've always thought that the reception was always great. Um, I feel like there, in, in American academia, there is this willingness of knowing the other. Um, and during the, my research, I've sensed that there was a bit more of interest given that Brazil was living at different times than we're living right now, right? Uh, Lula with Dilma, Brazil was doing really well with the economy. Uh, Brazil was gonna host the World Cup and the Olympics. So there was like, Brazil was living a hype in the US. 
So I've always felt very welcomed by other, uh, by my colleagues uh, due to the work that I do. And given the social justice tone that I bring, they, I feel like they like it even more. And it's also a big responsibility because I don't, like I said, I don't want to speak for those in marginalized areas. I don't want to romanticize anything that they go through, but rather I want to show the life as it is in those places and, and try to um, not show the raw, uh, their raw life, but rather a, a life that you want to see them um, portrayed. So that has always been my, my challenge. So I, in a way, I've always felt really welcomed uh, by you know, the American institutions of this kind of work that I do. Uh, the only drawback is, is funding, right? Uh, Brazil is not in the attention for the, for the NSF. Um, these major, you know, funding institutions in, in America, they rather um, sponsor projects in countries in Africa and Southeast Asia. I think there is a, a history there. I wish they would, uh, or maybe when it's South, when it's Latin America, Mexico becomes the, the focus. But unfortunately, Brazil is never there in, you know, in their um, focus at all. So this, this was, to me, it's the only drawback. But on the other hand, uh, the institutions have always been supportive enough that I never really needed to go after these, these grants to support my research. So that, that was something nice. Okay. Um, now, you, you've sort of been a, a, a traveler in different academic fields. Um, you are now in a media studies department and, you know, that is central in the field, but before your PhD, you know, was in uh, the School of Information or Informatics at, um, at Indiana. Uh, you are trained by a community of historians, anthropologists. Um, um, uh, even currently, you know, you, you're part of the lab at Princeton, which I'm assuming is run by Joao. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> in anthropology, then um, you are at the Berkman Center. How has your journey into communication and media studies been and and what observations do you have about the field from an outside perspective an outsider joining in right yes now that's a very good question um, so uh, just an observation so Jean Biel uh, he blurred my book in English which I was super happy because I'm also a big fan of his work um, but you're right so so coming from informatics and where you know you encounter people doing um, big data work or complex systems, computational analysis, and we are the track where we do qualitative and critical inquiry. Um, and of course, there the faculty will protect the students. So you're good there. But once you go into the departments as you know a peer. And that's where you see, you see the reality as it is. Uh, I joined Kentucky uh, in the information school, and I could tell that there was a, a drive towards um, big data analysis and quantitative approaches. 
which it's not really what I do, but I can absolutely put myself in the conversation, but it wasn't something that I felt like I was, I was contributing or being part of, of the department. And they were mostly focused on um, library science or instructional technology, which was not really my thing. But as a, you know, looking into things that people do at CHI, you know, the Human, uh, Human Computer Interactions Conference, it's either the, the user experience approach or the big data approach that they speak louder than any other approach. And I was like, mm, I can speak to both, but that's not my main uh, object of study. And I've always been interested in the, the communicative aspect of technology more than the information aspect of it. So uh, in, in the book, I'm always talking about how they communicate with each other, how people communicate with folks from outside the favelas, you know, how people bypass um, the censorship of you know, the drug cartels. So it's always the communicative aspect that called my attention and my interest. So not surprisingly, I saw myself more, in more communi communication more with folks in media studies and, and communications. Um, what is interesting is that I don't have the communication um, degree background. So uh, theories related to mass communication, interpersonal communication, uh, I totally see the value, but it's certainly not what I know. And joining a department that has some of that um, and see where I fit, it certainly uh, shows how transdisciplinary the field has become. And more interestingly, how welcoming it, is, it's, it also has become. I feel like media studies is, is way more welcoming to qualitative uh, researchers than information studies uh, has become. Because information studies used to be very open to qualitative folks, but it's becoming less and less because unfortunately that's where funding is, like for, to support quantitative and big data analysis and, and research. Media studies I thought was uh, more welcoming and it has the criticality that I like to engage in my work. Uh, I don't wanna, I mean, I, and I, I'm watching my words here because I have great friends in information studies that do a lot of work, amazing critical work, but the kind of work that we see in STS, I feel like it's, I, I saw it be more compatible in, in media studies than my own experience in information science. I need to be careful here because I know that there are people doing amazing work in information studies. Um, Steve Jackson is one of the few ones that are information studies in SDS. I cite him a lot in my um, infrastructure chapter. Um, but I think that my, the tone of my criticality matches really well with the tone of criticality that I see in media studies. Excellent. Now you are um, also a highly engaged public scholar, um, uh, issues of misinformation, democracy, the quality of the polity. Um, you have quite a following on Twitter. Um, and um, your home country has been going through a fairly um, traumatic, shall we say, uh, and sad uh, period in its recent history. Um, what has been your experience um, being out there commenting on those issues? So that, that related to technology and oppression, but they are different from the substance of your fieldwork in your book. Yes. So with 
So the, my research in, in my book is, a, is the research that led me into looking into the misinformation problem because uh, I finished the, my field work right when the June journeys were happening. I mean, took place in 2013, which were this massive protest that, was, uh, that were happening in Brazil and people were going to social media to uh, organize the, the protests or advertise the protest day location. So that really struck my attention. So I kept following that. And in 2013, people were protesting against the government, but they wanted the government to provide a solution. So there was a, a, a productive protest, let's say. Whereas in 2014, it shifted completely the tone where people were asking for for uh, for Dilma Rousseff to be impeached, to renounce, uh, to step down. It became this misogynist, uh, you know, far-right-leaning protest that had nothing to do with 2013. Although people were saying, oh, they are capitalizing on the wave of, of the protests of 2013, which in the book I explain how different they are. So there I saw that there's a lot of misinformation happening that's why I got into this thing. I did not know that Bolsonaro was going to happen until you know, 2018. And there I decided to take a different approach. Usually in academia, you know, we do uh, a well-grounded research before we publish or before we say anything. But given the urgency of the issue in Brazil, I decided to do the opposite. I decided to write to the public press and reach out to the public press to see if we could have a more immediate impact. Because unfortunately, journal publications take longer. So I took an, an inverted process to speak first and then do more of a, uh, a well-explained analysis in uh, academic work. So I became very active in that sense. My first piece, uh, which was published by The Guardian in 2018, I was unpacking the infrastructure of misinformation uh, which basically, you know, in, in the absence of a filter bubble that we see in, in, in Facebook, uh, whoever was behind it put together a human infrastructure to curate and share and create misinformation throughout WhatsApp, because WhatsApp doesn't have an algorithm. So they worked uh, similar to the algorithm in a sense. So it was like showing like who was behind it, who was working for them, who were these people to have some sort of impact. Uh, the, the article was kind of a hit, but was kind of too late to make any change and Bolsonaro ended up winning. And because the misinformation was still happening to this day where you know people are promoting disinformation campaigns so people can take hydroxychloroquine instead of getting the COVID shots. You know, it kills, and we know the misinformation kills. We had examples in India, even in Brazil. So I worked more of a, uh, an academic activist on that front. And I felt the need of eventually theorize and conceptualize everything that I was researching, but publishing in a more accessible language. So in the book, I saw this as being an opportunity. So in the book, there's a chapter called Technology of, of the Oppressor, where I theorize more and engage more with the theory, with the things that I saw like from de defining a human infrastructure of, of misinformation to uh, theorizing 
how the online radicalization process happens on WhatsApp. So that I was able to do in the book, but I continue to do these, these things more publicly because of the urgency and how critical things have become in Brazil. And I feel like these things need to get out so we don't ever go back to what is happening right now. And what has been your experience as an, as an academic and as a public scholar in terms of uh, the reaction to this? Uh, yes. Regular members of the public, people in politics, other academics, um, what so, has the journey been like? Yeah, so I, I was very well received in Brazil because like I said, I built my academic career abroad. So I wasn't really known in Brazil and that was, uh, a good way to connect to other academics, to Brazil, so people kind of know who I am. However, um, those who were uh, on opposite sides took that as a threat. Um, so of course I became a target for them. Uh, I would get like emails threatening me, saying that uh, they knew that I was in the US, but if I come to Brazil, I'll be in trouble. Um, in December of 2019, when I went to Sao Paulo for a research meeting, um, I was followed in, in, in Birapuera Park, and the person took a photo of me and then emailed me saying, you know, we, we know where you are, um, be careful. And the day I got that email, like knowing that they were following me, you know, that gave me the chill. So the next day I took the first flight back to the US. And because of that, uh, I couldn't return to see my family for two, for two years. Of course, it was also, also overlapped with the pandemic. Uh, and it's very weird way of saying this, but the pandemic helped these guys. The underlying reason why I couldn't go back to Brazil. Um, but that was not a well received by the supporters of Bolsonaro. Um, I haven't gotten more uh, any threats anymore because now the government is in very big trouble and I became a much smaller fish for them to fry, but uh, they're still out there and Bolsonaro really gave a platform and the, the, the encouragement for these people to act these ways. So for those who were trying to stand in favor of democracy, in favor of, of academia, in favor of decency, unfortunately um, has to deal with these threats. How, how much of the story like yours, and I'm assuming there are many other stories like this, not just in Brazil, but in other countries facing sort of illiberal uh, regimes, how much of that is told by your colleagues in the States, for instance? How much? Sorry, I didn't. Of, of a story like this is known by your colleagues in the states and you know academic circles outside of Brazil. So uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know to which extent that gets the attention of you know, the international community. Uh, of course, my department knows, my college knows. They they, they have been super supportive. Um, from offering uh, the legal office to, you know, personal uh, protection and personal support. But beyond that, uh, I don't think a lot of people know about it it's just because it stays insular to 
to Brazil. So it's it's hard to see those things traveling um, outside Brazil. Uh, and I feel like there is something about how some American scholars seeing this as you know how Latin America has always been. You know, we have the the tropical fascists going after professors. Uh, oh, that's very common. You know, whereas here in the U.S., we saw you know professors being at risk in Trump times, and then there was that big uproar, and people were scared and you know fearing that the tenure security uh, was going to be taken away. But then when it happens in Latin America, oh, it's just you know uh, just another thing of of Latin America, unfortunately. But it's serious, right? It, it, it divides family, it kills people. Uh, I had the privilege, I was already living here, right? So I had the privilege to just hop on the plane and come and be safe here. But what about the professors who are getting threats in Brazil? Like they don't have that privilege. Um, so it, they are in a much more precarious situation in a more dangerous situation than me because I still have the privilege here to stay in Charlottesville, Virginia, but nobody will come. But them, they have to face something much you know, bigger and stronger in, in everyday life. Right, 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 right. So, so then if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication with the studies or you know, academic environments in general to change, what would you wish for? That is a big question. Um, so personally, I wish I knew media studies since the beginning. So I wouldn't have to bounce around in, the, in these many degrees and programs. I truly think that these programs and, and degrees really helped me become who I am. But I wish I could uh, spend more time since my um, um, undergraduate program in media studies. So I wish the program itself, uh, the field itself was more accessible to those starting um, and becoming interested in, in media studies. To understand what it means to be interdisciplinary, to understand what it means to be transdisciplinary, that you can do this kind of work, you can research this kind of work. Um, so basically, build a, a better foundation in undergraduate institutions so people feel welcomed and, and can build this identity since the beginning, not wait until um, they get their tenure track positions. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, David. This has been a fabulous conversation. I, I greatly appreciate your sharing the, the journey with us. Um, I want to thank also the listeners for staying with us through the end and invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Pablo. Adios. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.